This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor presides over what might best be described as show-and-tell to talk about how the state education establishment is dealing with coronavirus. One thing they did not tell is when schools will reopen. Another flood of applications at the state unemployment office, but the Gov says they're doing a better job getting names into the system. Florida sets a new logistical record, shipping more masks, gowns, gloves, and booties Thursday than any other time during the pandemic. The governor signs a bill reviving Visit Florida, giving it three more years to prove itself to skeptical lawmakers. On the Sunrise interview, you'll hear from the president of the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association, which is pretty much closed for the coronavirus, unless you're doing takeout. The PSC schedules a special meeting at the end of the month to vote on plans submitted by Florida's big four power companies to refund excessive fuel charges to their customers. The USDA releases new estimates on the Florida citrus crop. They're expecting fewer but larger oranges. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man who could get five years in prison for spitting on a cop. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, April 10th. First, the numbers. There have now been more than 16,800 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Florida, 317 fatalities, including 48 deaths in the last 24 hours. 170,000 Floridians filed unemployment claims last week, and over the past three weeks, nearly half a million Floridians have lost their jobs. The U.S. Department of Labor says those layoffs hit almost every segment of the economy, including agriculture, construction, manufacturing, wholesale trade, retail, services. Now, as dreadful as those numbers are, the reality is even worse. We still have no idea how many people have been unable to file for unemployment because the system was overwhelmed. But Governor DeSantis says things are improving. There's been a big increase in the call center capacity, uh, and there's been an increase in the website capacity. Now, the, the first day when the servers were in, I think that they processed 65,000 through Connect, which was the most that has happened I think probably in Florida history, but then as people realized there were more servers, you started getting a crush of even more people. So it slowed down Monday. It got a little bit better, uh, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday. So, so that's just, but there is a, an additional website option. I think when you go on, I think they call it like, um, I, I, for, I don't know the technical term, but, but so people are submitting through that. It's going to be responsibility of the state to migrate that over, but at least people can file. We'll know when they file. They'll have the opportunity to do it. And then we are, I think we're starting to get the shipments in from the FedEx office sites. FedEx, as you know, was uh, kind enough to print applications for people. People can fill them out, and then FedEx will send the stack uh, every day from all their FedEx office locations to Tallahassee, and those are processed uh, with, with state employees. And so this is a, uh, a, a, a real serious effort. I think the amount of resources that have been put into this, if you look at all the DOR employees, if you look at all the other employees from the agencies, if you look at the number of people who are now brought on to, to make phone calls, uh, we are taking this extremely seriously. We're putting as much as we can there. And then if there are things that, that aren't going good, you know, I told them you need to be nimble and we need to make sure um, you know, how, you, how you get it done. But I think that we're in a better position today than we were a week ago. And um, we need to continue to, to improve the system. Speaking of improvement, the governor says Florida set a record Thursday distributing personal protective equipment that has been in such short supply during the pandemic. Florida Department of Emergency Management um, is sending out uh, one of the biggest shipments of supplies in the department's history. Two million surgical masks, 300,000 face shields, more than 50,000 containers of hand sanitizer, 500,000 
shoe covers, more than 100,000 gowns, and 350,000 gloves. So with today's push, the cumulative total for the department, 5.2 million masks, more than 500,000 face shields, 4.75 million gloves, 275,000 gowns. So I want to thank Director Moskowitz for his hard work. That's an enormous effort. That's a huge amount of supplies uh, being pushed out uh, to first responders and frontline health care workers. But the governor's primary focus of this particular press conference was education, which is now happening online instead of in person. And there's probably not been one aspect of society that's had a more broad-based effect, this had an effect on, than our education system, just because we have millions of people involved in it. Um, and to be able to transition to this as quickly and relatively seamlessly as has been done throughout the state, uh, I, I would have anticipated much more issues. And I'm not saying there's not going to be issues, uh, but I think folks uh, working in Florida school system deserve a lot of credit. I think the, the parents deserve a lot of credit. So, so we here in, at the state government appreciate what you're doing. We understand it's not easy, and we obviously would love to get, to get back to normal as soon as we can. We just want to make sure we're doing it safely. Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran says the switch to virtual schooling has been a lot smoother than they expected for the class of 2020, and he gives much of the credit to the students who have been through, well, let's just say a lot in their short lives. You guys are a, a generation that was born around 9-11, uh, lived through the Great Recession, and now is going through uh, one of the world's greatest pandemics. Uh, what we're seeing is that this generation, hopefully they're the beginning of a great generation. They're, they're hopefully another greatest generation here in America, given all that they've had to survive. We're going to persevere, we're going to get through this, and, and we're going to continue to keep students safe, and we're going to continue to do a great job of giving them that great education. As of now, Florida schools are closed until May 4th, but it could be extended. Governor DeSantis says that decision has yet to be made. We're going to look at the evidence and make a decision. We have not made a decision yet. I think, look, if, we, if, if it's safe, we want kids to be in school. I think most parents want that. So we're going to continue to, to look and see how this, how this develops and then, and then make a decision there. But I think Richard and I have talked about it. I mean, if we get to the point where people think that we're on the other side of this, and we could get kids back in, even if it's for a couple weeks. I, we think that there would be value in that. Uh, I think it would kind of return to normalcy a little bit. There's going to obviously be things different in society. I'm not saying it's going to be 100% normal immediately, but I do think that there would be value. So if, it, so if it's safe to do it, then, then we'd like to do it. Now, the, if you look at with schools, I mean, kind of the, the, the public health playbook when things happen like this, you know, close schools, cancel mass gatherings, there's just certain things you do. Um, and, I, and I think, and I understand that, um, this particular pandemic is one where I don't think nationwide there's been a single fatality under 25. For whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to, to threaten, um, you know, kids. And we lose in Florida between 5 and 10 kids a year for the flu. This one, for whatever reason, much more dangerous if you're 65 and plus than the flu, no doubt about that. If you're younger, it just hasn't had an impact. So that should factor into how we're, how we're viewing this. I think the data on that has been 100% consistent. I've not seen any deviation on that. Obviously, there's second and third order effects that you have to do in terms of how kids interact or whatnot. But, but we're going to look at it. I mean, we'll make a decision in due time. But I think most parents, if, if, if they're confident we're on the other side of this and, they, and they're confident that it could be safe, I think if they had that option, uh, I think that they would choose to have them go back to school. 
A South Florida congresswoman is calling on the Trump administration to start distributing $100 billion to hospitals. That money was included in the coronavirus relief package. But U.S. Representative Debbie McCarcel Powell says the hospitals, including Jackson Memorial in Miami, are still waiting. You know, I think it's important to remember that while all of us are working from home, having these Zoom conferences, there are tens of thousands of healthcare professionals that are working around the clock to save lives. And I see everyday people in our community sending their thanks and their gratitude to these workers. But I think we need to also remember all of the workers and the staff that are keeping these hospitals running. And they are those that are cleaning their hospitals, that are making sure that those supplies are are being replaced. They're keeping our hospitals secure, organized. They come to work every day and they also know that they're facing significant health risks but they play such a critical role in keeping our healthcare facilities running. If you remember when we passed the CARES Act, we allocated over 100 billion specifically for our hospitals so that we could reimburse them for outstanding costs while also ensuring that their providers receive the needed support for COVID-19 related expenses and lost revenue. The intent of this provision was in part to quickly inject funding directly into our hospital system so that our healthcare facilities would not be forced to reduce staffing. This is critically important because during this crisis, we must provide federal financial aid to keep our hospitals fully staffed, fully prepared with the needed supplies and um, everything that they need to confront the coronavirus pandemic. Our hospitals and the staff are risking their life every day working at these facilities and they can't wait to, for the federal government to release these funds. I wanna highlight the reality that following the recommended guidelines to cancel elective surgeries and non-urgent medical procedures while dealing with COVID-19, hospitals throughout our districts, including Jackson Memorial Health, are faced with budgetary shortfalls and are facing immense financial stress. Jackson Memorial is the fourth largest healthcare system in the US, and we need to make it a priority uh, for them to be able to receive the funds that are going to be dispersed. Yesterday, the president and the CEO of Jackson Memorial, Carlos Migoya, made the commendable decision to indefinitely suspend furloughing staff in hopes that Congress will provide the funds they need to continue to operate at the current levels. Staffs at hospitals like Jackson should not be forced to wait, which is why I'm urging the Trump administration to disperse this funding immediately so hospitals can avoid taking these drastic steps to reduce their payrolls and quickly give Congress the information needed to assess the amount of additional funding required in future packages, which we're right now working on. I wrote a letter to Secretary Azar, HHS Secretary Azar, and the CMS Administrator Verma to urge them to give the teams at our hospitals the assurances that their budgets will remain intact so they can focus their efforts on ensuring that they have all the resources needed to protect their workforce and give our doctors, nurses, and other professionals working in our healthcare facilities the peace of mind that their jobs are not in immediate risk so that they can concentrate their efforts on saving lives. While the Congresswoman was holding her video conference, the administration announced that $30 billion of the $100 billion set aside for hospitals would be released today. She says that's a good start and wants the rest of the money distributed as soon as possible. Visit Florida is officially back in business. The state's tourism marketing agency had been targeted for termination on June 30th, but the governor has signed a bill extending that deadline for three more years. House Speaker Jose Oliva was the one who led the charge to abolish Visit Florida, and he says the only reason it survived is that they managed to convince lawmakers the agency will be needed after the pandemic to lure tourists back to Florida. 
Visit Florida deserves credit for marketing, at least inside the legislature. Uh, what they do outside uh, will remain in doubt, in my view, forever. But they've certainly convinced the legislature of their importance. Add to it the advent of coronavirus and the issues that the cruise ship companies are having and the possibly our theme parks. And there is no doubt that an already difficult argument about an agency that has no real power over any of that will once again convince us that but for them, uh, tourists would be leaving. I think what we will see is that no amount of Visit Florida money can stop people from not taking a cruise if they decide not to take a cruise. No amount of that money can make people go to a theme park. No amount of that money can stop some of the street festivals that have already been canceled. So, but again, I, you know, I, I will always hold that opinion, uh, but you can't always hold the position. The Senate president and the governor insisted on saving Visit Florida, and they prevailed during final negotiations. That stay of execution is good until October 1st of 2023, so they'll be fighting this battle all over again in a couple of years. One of the persons who fought hard to keep Visit Florida is Carol Dover, who runs the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association. The signing of the bill was a bright moment in an otherwise very dark time for her industry, and she'll be joining us next. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Carol Dover, the president and CEO of the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association. Welcome to the show, Carol. Thank you, Rick. It's always good to talk to you, sad it's under these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. But I was going to ask, what is it like to be in an industry that is pretty much shut down now? Uh, it's very surreal. You know, we, the number one tourist state, you know, the the economic engine of the state is our hospitality and tourism industry. And then you, you know, drive down the streets and there are very few cars and restaurants are empty and hotels are empty. And it's just, it's very surreal and, you know, very sad, but, um, but you know, we're a, we're a very resilient industry and a very resilient state and we will bounce back. Now are all of the hotels closed now or are some of them open on, on reduced basis? There are some open, Rick, that are only for essential use only. So, you know, we have some elderly folks we're putting up. We have some COVID-19 patients that are being housed. In some cases, the COVID-positive person is staying at home and their family may possibly be in our hotel. Um, you know, and then there's the traditional life goes on, you know, people who have, um, you know, babies being born and and maybe the family needs a place to stay or the husband needs a place to stay and um you know it's there are instances where you know people have other needs outside of this virus but they have but they're critical and so we're making sure we're putting them up as well now there are a lot of people that used to work in the in the restaurant lodging business so hundreds of thousands are now unemployed is, are, are we going to lose that labor pool, or are they going to be there when it's time to come back? What, what, what do you think? Uh, I think they'll be there when it's time. Most of them will be there. I mean, we have 1.5 to 1.6 million or had uh, employed in our industry. And, uh, you know, yes, it's true that probably well over half, maybe three-quarters of them are unemployed. But as you well know, our unemployment system is overloaded. And people need to remember, you know, phase three that passed through Congress and the president signed is super important. And people are trying to frantically get their paperwork done. But if you apply for unemployment, you're ineligible to go back to work on the phase three plan. So 
people need to be very careful, too, about how they approach this. We would rather see our members get this paperwork in, get the banks, you know, getting them their staff, their 2.5 times their monthly staff uh, income, let them hire the staff back, and let's get these restaurants and hotels back open when it's safe. Any kind of guess as to when it's going to be safe? Oh, that's way outside of my league. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to all the sciences like you are and the, the government and our, I think our governors do an amazing job. And, and you know, they will be the ones to call this shot. I mean, we'll, we'll be standing here ready and willing to open the minute they, you know, tell us it's time. I can tell you that we are working very hard on what does the reopen plan look like and maybe rick when it gets closer to that time we can talk more in detail but you know we're trying to make sure we have a plan in place that gives the consumer confidence that they can come back inside you know we might have to sit a little bit further apart in the beginning um we are putting in hand washing stations in a lot of our restaurants for the public not they're, they're, they're there for the employee, but not in every case for the public. Um, we're looking at different types of sanitation. You know, we are the state's uh, food safety educator and trainer, so we're looking into our training programs and now adding a whole new chapter related to, to the coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, a lot of things are going to change about the way when we open back up, but, you know, in some ways it may not be all bad. You know, we're we're, we're learning a lot from this, and I, I really feel like when we open up, um, in many cases, we will be a better business entity for having lived through some of this. Of course, one of the, the small glimmers of hope is the, the governor signing the Visit Florida bill to keep it alive. Yes. Uh, do you, I, yes. I, I guess you're, you're going to be counting on them a lot once, this, uh, once we go back to work. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, you know, we're thrilled he signed it. Um, you know, I think that this is the first, the kickoff. You know, we're going to punt the ball here with the the first pot of money. But you know how I've felt about this for a long time. I think, you know, Florida has got, we have to advertise. And I think, though we are incredibly grateful for $50 million, I think to put this state back on its uh, feet again, it's going to require more than that down the road. But, but we're just grateful that, Visit Florida survived, and we have money, and and that the governor signed it. And in the meantime, what can the average Floridian do to try to help out with your industry? Is it is it as simple as just doing takeout? Takeout delivery, um, obey the rules, stay home. Don't you know? Don't try to get on their beaches and sit out, get into our hotels, and you know, just obey the rules. The sooner we get this behind us, the sooner life goes on. But go do takeout, delivery. Um, and again, I, you know, I also want to do a shout out for our industry. It never fails. This industry always amazes me and how they pull together every time there's, you know, we're, we've got the playbooks for hurricanes and the playbook for algae bloom and oil spill, but, you know, we don't have one for this one. And they've pulled together, feeding the elderly, feeding these kids. we Yesterday, my job was to find refrigerated trucks so we could get milk from the dairies to the schools. And it didn't take but a couple of calls. And 
we've got refrigerated trucks on the road today getting milk to these kids. I mean, it just, it's just an amazing industry, and I'm so humbled and honored to have been able to represent them as long as I have. Our guest today has been Carol Dover, the president and CEO of the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association. The Public Service Commission meets at the end of the month to consider requests by four major utilities to temporarily reduce rates. Florida Power and Light, Duke Energy Florida, Gulf Power, and Tampa Electric Company have saved millions of dollars on the cost of natural gas used to fuel their power plants, and they've all filed plans to pass those savings back to customers, as required by state law. FPL, Duke, and Gulf want to refund the entire amount in May to help consumers who may be facing financial problems because of the COVID-19 crisis. Tampa Electric's proposal is somewhat different. They want to stretch the refunds out over the rest of the year. The U.S. Department of Agriculture releases an updated forecast for the citrus growing season, and it's down slightly. USDA statistician Bill Curtis announced the numbers on a conference call. Starting with Florida, the non-Valenza oranges is 30 million boxes. The Valenza oranges, 40 million boxes. All Florida oranges, 70 million boxes. Moving on to the Florida grapefruit. Florida grapefruit all, 5.2 million boxes. That's composed of 4.3 million boxes of red, 900,000 boxes of white grapefruit. Okay, moving on to the Florida all tangerines and tangelos. There's no change at 1,050,000 boxes. Florida's revised orange forecast is about 1% lower than the previous estimate. But what they lack in quantity, they may make up in size. The USDA says this year's oranges tend to be larger than the previous two years. Your calendar of events starts with the Florida Board of Nursing Home Administrators. They're having a conference call at 9. Pasco Hernando State College officials will hold a collective bargaining session with the faculty union at 9.30. The Miami-Dade Refugee Task Force is holding a conference call at 10. And Florida political candidates, committees, and parties all face a deadline today for filing reports showing their financial activity through the end of March. Finally, it's time once again for the new adventures of Florida Man, who faces up to five years in federal prison for spitting on a cop and telling her he was infected with coronavirus. The U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Florida has charged 31-year-old James Curry with perpetrating a biological weapons hoax. Curry was arrested by St. Pete Police about two weeks ago for domestic violence. He bonded out of jail, and officers were called back the very next day. While he was being arrested the second time, officers say he spit on one of them several times, hitting her in the face, nose, and inside the mouth with blood-filled saliva. Then Curry announced he had coronavirus and began laughing. Police obtained a search warrant so they could test Curry. It came back negative, but he can still get up to five years, even if it was a hoax. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. (laughs) 